Jay's Four Questions is brought to you by the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles. Through its impactful work and partnerships, the Federation touches every Jewish life in Los Angeles, Israel, and around the world. For more information, visit www.jewishla.org. This week, I'm in conversation with award-winning journalist and television producer, Avi Sakharov. You know him from his work in Haaretz, The Times of Israel, and his hit television show on Netflix, Fauda. We talk about the challenges translating Israeli television for a global audience, his experiences on the ground covering the war in Lebanon and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and his deep love of his grandmother's Kube. Avi, it's nice to talk to you. I, I, um, I'm, I'm pretty obsessed with people's journeys, and, um, and, and the, and the kind of contradictions we have in our lives. So, you are a journalist who has become a pretty successful television creator producer, and I'm wondering what inspired you to go from your world as a journalist and a commentator in Israel to being the co-creator and, and, and one of the driving forces behind a very successful television show, Fauda. So I, I think that uh, one of the main reasons is what you've mentioned, and this is why I think that it's not contradicting, meaning my journalistic journey, my experiences on the ground in the West Bank and in Gaza Strip, as a journalist covering the Palestinian arena, covering the Middle East for Israeli audience, I think that this is what brought me to the point in which I felt that there's much needed to be told that has not been told till, till then. And this is one of my main motivations to go with this uh, adventure of Fauda. Now, of course, it's not only that. Uh, I did it together with Leo Raz. Uh, the co-creator, my my partner and my friend, my good friend. And we walked into this uh, adventure together knowing that we need to tell a story that hasn't been told about the Israeli special forces uh, that, is based more, most, that is based more or less about our military background. And, of course, the reality that we had seen on the ground uh, as Israelis and as a journalist uh, that has been visiting a lot in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. So when you went and pitched this idea, um, what was your pitch? What did you, how did you pitch the show? Wow, at the beginning, it was quite a long time ago. It was 2010, uh, nine years ago. We didn't have something specific in mind. We just came with the world, meaning we want to make a show about the undercover units that are operating uh, in Israel, uh, in the West Bank and in Gaza. And we want to also bring the other side the Hamas's side, what we had in the pitch is more or less a team of undercover soldiers that is trying to bring down a Hamas archi-terrorist. That's it. That was the whole pitch, more or less. And it makes you wonder how someone agreed to take that. But as a matter of fact, all the answers that we've been given uh, at the beginning were no, negative, completely no. And I can totally understand that because the pitch wasn't good. And the idea to deal with uh, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is kind of, uh, if to be honest, it sounds pretty pretty boring in Israel. I mean, 
for Israelis to deal with the conflict again after chewing it in the news and after having the Palestinian-Israeli conflict outside your house and outside your window, having a show, a TV show, a drama that would deal with that again, oh my God, it's like so boring. So why would anyone watch it? And this is why at the end we, we got negative answers one after the other. And so now, uh, after all this time, and it being a, an international phenomena, and Netflix, you know, it's a it's a big driver of, of people to Netflix. Why do you think it's resonating globally? Wow, well, uh, that's a good question <laughs> because I I didn't see it coming in Israel. I didn't see this show taken by any of the networks. I didn't think that anyone would watch it after it was taken by, yes, a satellite company. I didn't think that many people in, in Israel would watch it. So I totally didn't think that abroad it's going to be a successful show. And then one after the other, like, yes, took it. Then we went on air at 2015, the uh, spring of 2015, and it became a big show, a big hit in Israel. And then after a year and a half, uh, Netflix took it. And it seems like it's uh, becoming very successful all around the world. So it's a miracle after a miracle after a miracle. You know, I can explain to you all kinds of reasons about the good drama. and about. Sometimes it's very difficult to explain miracles. It's a miracle. So I think that it's a kind of a rare combination that everything fell on the right spot at the right time. Um, I'm not sure that it could have happened today. I'm not sure that it could have happened 10 years ago. But it was the right time at the right place with a good script, I guess, and good directing and fabulous acting. And all together, it came to the right place. And um, how has it changed your life? What's different about your life today than you know when I met you, uh, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago? So, uh, naturally, I deal more with uh, the show business, with, um, with our show, Fauda, but also with another show that we're working on right now for Netflix called Hit and Run. Uh, and I travel a lot. This is not as, uh, as nice and sexy as it sounds. Like, I prefer to stay in Israel and to travel less. But this is work. And I think that my main focus is becoming more about the TV business, the TV show business, and less about journalism, although I still stick to my daily job as a journalist. So when you were, you were born in Jerusalem, when you were growing up, is this what you wanted to do? Did you always want to be a, a writer or a reporter? No, no. I didn't have in mind to be a reporter or a journalist or a TV creator, not at all. I think that, you know, as a kid in Israel or as a young man in Israel, I had some different thoughts in my head about maybe becoming part of intelligence, part of security, not something that would deal with media. Any version of media seems to, seem to me far away has almost been an astronaut. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't on the radar even uh, when I was 22, 23. I didn't even dream about it. And were your parents also born in Israel, or, or were they born somewhere else? 
Well, they were born in Israel. They, my mom and dad both were born in Israel. Um, my father's side is actually it's the eighth generation in uh, Jerusalem. Wow. Uh, they came from Uzbekistan, from Bukhara. Uh, so, but they were very the, the very first people outside the walls of Jerusalem. They they started the Bukharian neighborhood. Until today, there's a synagogue under the name of my family in the Bukharian neighborhood uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, my mom's side came from Kurdistan um, around 1920s, also pretty early. Um, this is the immigration or the Zionism that you usually didn't hear about because they came from uh, Middle Eastern countries and came from uh, the Sephardic side, so you have heard less about them in the, in the regular Zionist uh, narrative. Uh, though my, my mom's side, at least, uh, they spoke Arabic. My mom spe still speaks Arabic. And I w if I want to gossip with my mother about something, you know, you always mm -hmm. gossip with your mother about something during Shabbat dinners, during whatever. So it's not that we're talking Yiddish, we're talking in Arabic. So I'm also really interested in people's uh, identities when it comes to, especially Israelis, in terms of where the Jewish begins and ends and where the Israeli begins and ends. And when you were growing up, did you have a, a Jewish aha moment where your Jewish identity uh, really became important to you? Look, I grew up in Jerusalem in a neighborhood called Givat Shaul, sure. which was uh, very religious. I wouldn't say that we were religious, but we were very what we called Masoti, meaning traditional. Um, then again, I think that it's not like the ultra-Orthodox. It's not like the uh, religious, regular religious that you know of. It's not that I had keep on my head, but we went to synagogue uh, every week, every Friday and Saturday, and there was Kiddush, and we kept kosher. So, of course, there was a lot. I mean, the neighborhood was religious. Uh, my surrounding was religious. My grandmom was religious, my sister, etc., so it wasn't something that was uh, foreign to me. That was part of my culture, part of my childhood. The synagogue in my childhood neighborhood is called upon my grandfather. Um, so everything was around the synagogue. That was the social meeting point or the center of, the, of my, my social life as a kid, as a young kid. After a while, we moved to a more secular neighborhood in Jerusalem, but that was a different story. But till the age of 13, yes, very much. And uh, that's the way that I was living. And today? Today, I'm less keeping. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not observant. You know? um, I think that for me, it's very important that my daughter would know its roots, its religion, will know everything that is possible about Judaism. But it's not that I'm observant, it's not that I keep uh, Shabbat or anything like that. I still like to do Kiddush on Fridays and I go um, like twice a year to the synagogue, but not more than that. So you went from being a journalist to being uh, a, a television, uh, a successful television producer. And I went from being a successful television producer to run the second largest Jewish community in the diaspora. And I always ask my guests uh, uh, one question, which, which helps guide me in my, in my work, which is what's the greatest uh, challenge facing the Jewish people today? And since you have a lot of experiences and you spend a lot of time in the diaspora as well as in Israel, 
Uh, Avi, do you have a take on what you think the greatest challenge is? I think that as a Jew, as an Israeli, you know what? I, I want to say something as, a, as an Israeli. Not even as a, as a Jew, but as an Israeli Jew. I think that what makes me worried is the way that the state of Israel is disconnecting itself from Jews in diaspora. And in, instead of embracing them, instead of understanding the importance of being one people, of keeping some kind of joint um, identity as Jews, uh, um, I think that my government is doing a crucial mistake by keeping them far and keeping them far and far and far more and more far away from us, from the state of Israel. And my government doesn't get the picture. I think that most of the coalition today in Israel do not get the picture about how important it is to keep the relations between the Jews in Israel and the Jews in the diaspora. Instead of trying and defining who's a Jew and who's not, just embrace people that are calling themselves Jews. This is more important for me than the security of the state of Israel. Because if to be honest, we do not face today existential threats. As the state of Israel, we do not face existential threats. We don't have a Syrian army that is threatening us. It's not like in the 1967 war that we had the Egyptian army at the gates of the state of Israel. It's not like the 1973 war when we had two big armies stepping, trying to get the hold inside the state of Israel, and it was very close to the collapse of the third, what we call the third temple, the state of Israel. This is not the case anymore. We are facing, of course, security threats like Hezbollah, like Hamas, but none of them is existential, and even not Iran. But the real threats that we are facing are the ones from the inside, about the future of the state of Israel, the threats for the democracy of the state of Israel, and the threat for Israel with its, its very special identity as a Jewish democratic state. And one of the biggest threats is the situation, the current situation, or the current crisis, if to call it by its name, with the Jews in diaspora. And again, trying to build up these uh, relations we are doing crucial mistakes by breaking up all the connection lines with the Jews in the diaspora. And do you think that's a con it's happening consciously? At the end, it happens because of political issues, because of political interests. It doesn't happen because Mr. Netanyahu doesn't like Jews in diaspora, but he wants to survive as a prime minister, and he would do everything possible in order to stay in power as a prime minister. So, so 10 years from now, I'm walking uh, down King George and I bump into you and um, I ask you how you are and you're even more successful. Um, you have 20 shows on television. Um, but I, 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 I ask you what you think is, is happening in Israel. What's Israel like in your mind, Avi, 10 years from now? First of all, which King George? In Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem? Because it's going to be <laughs> quite different. Let's assume it's Jerusalem. Yeah. Okay. So then again, Jerusalem, and it's very sad to say, it's, it's becoming more and more ultra-Orthodox, and it's losing many of the young people that are living there. And every day that passes by, it becomes more and more poor. 
sitting already it's uh, the poorest city in Israel today Jerusalem because of the population because of the combination of uh, Arabs ultra orthodox and the Jewish community over there and all the fights and the conflicts and it looks it, it looks like the future of Jerusalem is not that bright having said that listen I'm I don't I'm not sure that I was born optimistic I don't remember when I was born but I am optimistic and you cannot be a pessimistic and to live in Israel at the end of the day because if you would be pessimistic you wouldn't stay here you wouldn't live here so I think that as someone who lives here you have to be optimistic and this is what I do I'm trying to stay optimistic about the future of the state I'm trying to be optimistic because I think that at some point though there are some crucial mistakes that are being done I think that the people in Israel will will awake and do the right thing in order to keep the state as a Jewish democratic state with democratic human humanistic ideals that would allow people from all religions and of course from Judaism to live as human beings without trying to dictate to them what to do and what not to do so I want to go back to your your home growing up because one of the things I talk about on the podcast is also food I talk about food because it's a great unifier so I'm wondering Avi if you have a favorite Jewish food memory from your childhood wow there's many um I'm not sure that you know your audience would be familiar with my Jewish uh, food, but hold on a second, let me think. Right, try it. Um, first of all, for my mother's side. Yep. Um, my <coughs> my biggest memory is, of course, from Fridays, but not through dinners, but before that, through noon, and through the morning when I was sitting in my grandma's kitchen. She was cooking for the whole family. And the whole family, I mean like 30, 40 people. And she was sitting over there with huge cans of what we call kube. Kube, it's like krepalach, but way, way better. Okay? <laughs> I don't know how to define it. But <laughs> I think you defined it well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but way, way better. It's, uh, it's very strong... Uh, is sour with the salty soup and inside of it um, all kinds of different kind of krepalach with meat inside and it's an Iraqi Kurdish food very known in our area uh, very good and very delicious but the way she was making that you know she was sitting over there for hours I, I swear in for hours she was sitting over there with the pastry in her hand with her finger just doing it pushing and pushing and pushing then putting the meat and she would give it to me and i would throw it into the into the bowl and there was a huge bowl of those small bowls that were inside the soup bubbling uh, boiling and i used to throw them just like a kid like kids do you know they they see a, a huge bowl of uh, soup and they throw into it those small balls with the the meat inside and it was like the preparations for the feast that would come for dinner, that that was even more special for me than the dinner itself. That sounds fantastic. That sounds yeah, and fantastic. one more thing that I, I, I'd like to mention, so, you know, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't discriminate my father's side. 
but they are Bukharians, and Bukharians also have great kitchen, amazing kitchen. Uh, one of the things is Ashpolo. Ashpolo is a kind of a rice with lamb meat and carrots and potatoes and many different uh, things. And I love cooking it. It's not only that I saw my uh, family doing that and my grandmom and my uh, mom doing that, but I also learned how to cook all these things and I love cooking. There's a, there's a great Bulgarian restaurant, you probably know it, on the edge of the Machine Yehuda Market. Um, which I just went to for the first time two years ago. I'd never had Bulgarian food before. Um, the edge of Machne Yehuda Market. Like on the back no. end of it. No, you haven't been no, there? No, I don't know All the right. Bulgarian. Next time I come, we'll, ha- we'll, have to, All right. we'll have to eat there. Okay, so that uh, in my four questions, um, I, I ask everybody if they could ask God one question, what would it be? Wow, that's a tough question. Um, let, let me start with the smallest one. Like, who's going to win the NBA championship? That's a thing. I that can makes t- by the me... way, I'm not God, and I can already tell you that. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. No, no, but that, that, that is something that uh, makes me wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, so, yeah. I wonder when I will be able to stop waking up at 4 a.m. in the morning and just keep sleeping. Um, but other than that, I don't know. I wonder what's my daughter's life going to look like. I think that is really interesting for me. And how is this place that I live in, the state of Israel? And I I spend a lot of time in L.A. too. Right. But uh, I'm still an Israeli and I spend like uh, three weeks here and one week over there in L.A., uh, I still wonder what, how would the state of Israel look like in 10 years? Just like what you tried to ask me about my future, if you will meet me in King George, I think that this is the questions that I will ask God. I think, you know, by the way, spending a lot of time in Los Angeles, I'm curious what you think. I mean, this this city has now the largest Israeli population outside the state of Israel. What What are you thinking about L.A. when you come? It's different. It's completely different for me. Um, it's not that I'm used to it. It's not that I, do, I listen. I speak the the language. That's the first step. But even though I speak the language, it's kind of amazing to see the cultural differences between Israelis and uh, and Americans. Uh, though they then then again they can connect and they can understand each other. But uh, at the end of the day, I'm a foreigner in LA. I don't know all the places. It's not my home yet. And it's quite fascinating for me to see the small differences in culture, in the gestures, in the way that people talk and the way that the people smile and the way that people act and behave. And it's a huge lesson for me in life about, you know, being with people that you're not coming from their, from their culture, from their origins. And it's a great school for me this uh, past two years. And I love it. I love to experience more and to learn more and to meet interesting people, to meet fascinating people and to know the city, L.A., which is great. And why do you think, you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation, why do you think we're in a place right now in L.A., in Hollywood, where Israeli formats are really uh, so successful that where so much of what storytelling is in Israel has been translated to an American market. Why do you think that's happening? 
I think there's something very Israeli, meaning very straightforward in the TV shows that you see from the, coming from Israel. It's not like the, the very professional Hollywood kind of style TV shows. It's something very bold. It's uh, rough. It's not like, then again, professional as the ones that we see in America. But maybe because of that, maybe because of the feeling of something very rough, you get the feeling that it's real. You get a feeling that you could have been there instead of the hero or the heroes, uh, whether it's a show about undercover soldiers or a show about ultra-Orthodox people, Shtisel, uh, I mean, that uh, are living in Israel. But because of its roughness, because of its uh, attempt to be as realistic as possible and not uh, fantastic as possible, uh, but the opposite, I think that what that's what connects people to to the Israeli shows. And adding to that, then again, uh, at the end of the day, it's also the ability of some people to tell the, uh, the story in a very interesting way. So I have one more question, and then we end in a little bit of a lightning round. So I, I always felt like your writing was very visual. Um, and, and I'm wondering, in your, in your journalistic experience, if there was one event that you covered that really uh, was, was the most powerful, something that you really, um, really changed you? Well, um, as a journalist, I think that the experiences that I had on the ground were pretty much dramatic and strong. Uh, I started in 2000, today is 2019. I covered uh, a war in Lebanon. I covered uh, the Intifada, the uprising of 2000. And of course, the terrorist attacks and the suicide attacks and assassinations and wars and battles and whatever you can imagine. I think that, you know, my experience are, it's a kind of a puzzle. There's not one big experience that can, that is, that is walking with me all the time. It's not like that. I think that it's many, many different experiences that are there, that are in my mind. And one day I hope that I'll have the chance to write a book about them because some of them were terrifying. Some of them were amazing. Some of them were just fun. And it's, I have to, to say that, you know, I'm, I'm honored to be someone who's been able to tell the story of a story that wasn't told at the end of the day. The story of, you know, this conflict, but from a very different perspective, a perspective that you usually do not see. And I have the privilege of being there on the ground and to see the people as they are, whether they're Israelis or Palestinians. And as cruel as they can be, they can be also very interesting and fascinating and lovable and supportive. And this is what I'm trying to do, to bring all this story into the screen. Well, and, I, and, and you're being very successful at it. Okay, so I end my conversation. I know you have to run um, with a lightning round. It's just quick, uh, a number of quick questions. You just have to make a choice between the two, okay? Are you ready? All right, New yes. York, New York Times or the Wall Street Journal? New York Times. Online or print? Print. Winning a Pulitzer or winning an Emmy? Wow. Pulitzer. All right. I end my podcast, Avi, with the same question. Every guest gets the same question. Here you go. Babka or Rugelach? Rugelach. Avi, 
Thank you very much. Good to, <laughs> good to talk to you. Um, I, I, I'd love to see you the next time you're in Los Angeles. I'll buy you lunch. i love to do that. Okay, Avi. Thank you. All right. Leech Roads. Thank you. Bye-bye. Stay tuned for more questions, more interesting people, and more conversations about food. Jay's Four Questions is a co-production of the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles and 131 Media. Our producer is Alana Weiner and technical director is Ariel Aboudi.